in a series in the book of Acts. Uh, every, every year, right after Easter, we go back to where we left off from the previous year. And I believe it's so important to do a, a verse-by-verse teaching in God's Word. Uh, there are times that we can get stuck on our favorite books of the Bible, our favorite chapters, or preachers get stuck on the favorite verses they like to preach from. And yet God's given us 66 books in the Holy Bible. And uh, we should have a, a knowledge and an understanding of what God is saying to, to us through His Word. So it's awesome to be able to be here in Acts. We're in Acts chapter 9. Last week, if you were with us, uh, we talked about the Damascus Road experience that Saul of Tarsus had, where he was radically saved. And we're going to pick up where we left off, but I've titled today's message from Acts, uh, Faith, Fads, and Fairy Tales. Now, we all know what a fad is, right? A fad is an intense, wildly shared enthusiasm for something especially one that is short-lived, a short-lived craze. And I was thinking about some fads over the last couple of decades, you know, like bell-bottom jeans, right? I think fads kind of recycle themselves, don't they? There's diet fads. Remember the South Beach diet and the Atkins diet? Uh, other fads, you know, people used to purchase hood ornaments for the top of their, of their cars or eight-track tape player or remember this fad, Mexican jumping beans, right? Or boy bands. There was like this fad, you know, boy bands popping up everywhere. MySpace. The new one is like hoverboards, right? How about Duck Dynasty? You know, that was like a fad. They were like, I was in Colombia a few years back, and they had posters of them everywhere. And I thought, hey, if you've seen one Duck Dynasty episode, you've seen them all. They're basically the same. Planking. Uh, is another fad, right? Selfies, everybody taking selfies. How about Tebowing? That was a fad for a while. And I hope this next one comes to an end. The Kardashians, everywhere you turn, Kardashians. So-and-so's gonna interview the Kardashians. Like, who cares? And then there's Pokemon, another fad. But I think the one that lets us know that it's close to the end times that Jesus is coming, there's gotta be a verse on this. But I see like yoga pants everywhere, right? The invasion of the yoga pants. That's, that's like the latest fad. Please, guys, don't be caught in them. Amen. <laughs> but Christianity isn't a fad. That's the point. Christianity is not some momentary, short-lived, enthusiastic craze that fizzles out. What happens to Saul of Tarsus in, in Acts chapter 9, what happened to the disciples in Acts chapter 2 on the day, day of Pentecost, this was not a fad. This was not something they were going to, well, I'll try it out, or let's, let's do this for six months to a year. No, it was more than a fad. I was thinking about this, and I remembered in my own life, it was 1980, I was living in Albuquerque. I was a student at Manzano High School. We were in a school assembly, and I was seated in the bleachers. Next to me was a friend. She was part of a group of friends that we would hang out with and, and do life with, if you call it that. And many of my friends had come to faith in Christ before me, those that I hung out with. But a lot of them were like dropping off like flies, kind of going back to their old ways. And I was on fire for the Lord. And she told me, she said, Carl, she said, you know, what you're experiencing right now, it's a fad. Those were her words, it's a fad. It won't last very long. She began to name certain friends and how they got into this Christianity stuff and, and now they're back to their old ways. She said, in no time, you'll be back to your old ways. And I thought about that for a split second. 
And in my heart, I thought, uh-uh, no way. This isn't going to be something, a fad that I'm going through. And I looked back at her and I said, Doreen, as long as you know me, Carl Toady, I want you to know I'm never going back to my old way of living. And this is not going to be a fad for me. Well, that was 37 years ago. And if it's a fad, I'm glad it's lasted for 37 years. Our faith is more than a fad. One of my favorite theologian, theologians, Dr. James Montgomery, I love what he said. He said, Christianity without biblical fidelity is merely another passing fad in an age of passing fads. Our faith is not a fad, and our faith is not a fairy tale. It's not based on a fairy tale. We all know what a fairy tale is, you know, a fanciful story, folklore like Jack and the Beanstalk, Hansel and Gretel, you know, Alice in Wonderland. The Bible is not a book of fairy tales. When people try to tell you that the Bible is, is filled with fairy tales, they don't know what they're talking about. They're really exposing their own ignorance. Just look at the historical facts and the archaeological discoveries related to the Bible. There's no other book in, in antiquity. There's no other book, no other ancient literature like the Bible. There are over 5,000 separate manuscripts that validate and substantiate the Holy Scriptures. It's a far cry from being able to even hint that the Bible is a book of fairy tales. But Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, when he was writing the letter, his second letter to a, a young protege by the name of Timothy, he said this in 2 Timothy 4.4. He said, there, there will come a time where people will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So many fables in this postmodern world that we live in today. So many fables that are, that are fed into by pop culture, by Hollywood and all the millions of dollars and the influence and the most popular and beautiful people in Hollywood, social media, in the mainstream media. And they feed the lies and the deception of fables and fairy tales. And it's sad. So many people have turned away from the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Christ is. And they're basing their life on a fad or worse, on a fairy tale. But ours is a living faith. And Saul of Tarsus, his Damascus Road experience, it wasn't a fad. And the way he lived the rest of his life and what he did to change the world and to make history wasn't because it was based on a fairy tale that somebody rose from the dead on the third day. But he met the living Lord and Savior. Everything changes when you and I meet the living Lord and Savior. So my first point is this. People can change with God's help. Saul of Tarsus, this Damascus Road moment is proof that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace or power, and people can change. Let's go back to the story, kind of picking up where we left off. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. 
And here, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Now, Ananias was just being honest with the Lord. He's saying, God, are you sure you got the right person? Because everything that Ananias and all the early Christians knew about Saul was he was a hater. He was a persecutor. He was a terrorist against, Christian, against Christians and in the, in the Christian faith. And yet, from one day to the next, this enemy of the cross becomes a promoter of the cross. This persecutor becomes a proclaimer of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, thank God for Ananias. I ask myself this question, would there have ever been an Apostle Paul if there wasn't an Ananias in Saul's life at this crucial moment? Saul is a new convert. He just got born again. He knows nothing. But God sends an Ananias into his life. I thank God for the Ananiases in my life, in my spiritual development. I know you're thankful for the Ananiases that God sent along your way in your spiritual journey to help you grow in your faith and come to an, a deeper understanding of what all this means. We all need that Ananias. And we all need to be an Ananias in somebody else's life. Those that are, that are recently converted to Christ, we need to come alongside and pray for them and encourage them and, and help them get established in the faith. You know, Ananias is only mentioned really one other time. Many years later in Acts 22, when Paul the Apostle is sharing his testimony, he says this in verse 12 of Acts 22 that Ananias was a good man. And yes, he was a good man. What made Ananias such a good man? He was a part of the local church there in Damascus. He had placed his faith in Christ. And he made himself available for the Lord to use him in this very special assignment. To go and pray for the former enemy of, of, of the cross of Jesus Christ and to minister life to him. We all need an Ananias. You know, his name means, according to uh, Hitchcock's Dictionary of Bible Names, cloud of the Lord. Cloud of the Lord is a reference in the Old Testament to the Shekinah glory of God. That there are some people that when they come into your life, they bring the presence of God with them. Aren't you thankful for the people in your life that bring the presence of God into your, your world? And may you be that Ananias to others. There's enough gloom and doom. There's enough, there, there are enough clouds, storm clouds of, of, of suffering and sorrow and pain and discouragement, disappointment and depression in our world. We need to be a, a cloud of the Lord. We need to make sure that the presence of God uh, permeates through our lives to touch others. But people, with God's help, can change. Maybe you're looking at your own life and you're thinking, Wow, will I ever get over this habit? Will I ever be able to overcome this addiction? Will I ever be able to break through these chains that seem to have been part of my life from an early, an early age? Or these, this bondage, this, this iniquity, this generational curse, some people call it, that's been from generation to generation to generation. But the, but the reality is people can change. And people can change with God's help. And most people want to change. You know, at the end of the day, most people really aren't happy with who they are. I heard about this popular myth, um, and it's kind of based on, on truth, and that is that every seven years, you have a seven-year cycle where you become a new person on a biological level. 
that the cells in your body, they're constantly dying and, and new cells are forming. And uh, our superintendent, Dr. Stephen Cox, is actually a former biologist, so I asked him to verify this for me. And he says, good cells die and make way for new cells. Ba Dr. John, bad cells don't die, become cancer, right? Cancerous cells. So your body, cells are dying and, and then being renewed. So the, the, the myth is every seven years, all of your old cells have died, and now you have new cells. And so from a biological standpoint, every seven years, you become a new person. I thought you looked different than you did seven years ago. But here's what is real. You have 50 to 75 trillion cells in your body, and each cell has its own lifespan, right? And really, we know that the Bible says, though the outward man perish, the inward man is being renewed day by day. You are changing. You are changing. A decade from now, you're going to look totally different. Every time you get out of the bathtub or get out of the shower, you see a ring around it. That's the old you washing down the drain. From dust you came, from dust you... Bye-bye, old Carl, right? And Father, time waits for no man. And, you know, time and gravity gets the best of all of us eventually. No, the outward man perish, yet the inward man's being renewed. But we're not talking about cosmetic changes. We're not talking about external changes. So many people invest so much time and effort in superficial exterior changes many times. And it doesn't mean it's wrong necessarily. But many times they're focusing on the outward instead of focusing on the inward. It's the hidden man of the heart. It's the inner person that you want to see go through a process of, of sanctification and transformation. Think about all the money that's spent every year on plastic surgery or people getting tattoos, and, and that's another fad of, of, of tattoos. I was talking to one of our pastors. He has a friend that's a tattoo artist, and he's booked for seven months in advance. He opens up for one day. He opens up his, his appointments, and in one day, he's filled for the next seven months, and then he'll take six months off. And then he's, he, he lists that he's open for work one on the, on, online and another seven months of clients filled up. I thought, I need to leave pastoring. I need to become a tattoo artist. That's the life. Why the craze? People want to change their hairstyle, change their physical appearance. They want to, they want to look or be something different because on the inside, everybody wants to change. No one really likes who they are. And that's the heart of the gospel is that God changes you from the inside out. Real change. And not only does he change you in a moment, a twinkling of an eye, 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Apostle Paul said, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have been made brand new. That when you get saved, you literally become a brand new person on the inside. You're a new man. You're a new woman in Christ Jesus. Yes, on the outside. You still have some of the struggles, some of the hang-ups, you know, some of the difficulties in life. But then that's when the Holy Spirit comes into our life and begins to sanctify us, and we go through a process of transformation. Romans 12, 3, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So people can change. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm glad he's changing you. I'm glad, I'm glad you're not the person you used to be. You were so mean back then. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> You know someone's met Jesus if there's evidence, if they've changed. You know someone's met religion if they're meaner than they ever were. Let me know Jesus doesn't make you meaner. Let me know reading the Bible, if you read it and you, you, you absorb the spirit of the, of the, of the law and not the, not the letter of the law, it makes you more loving, 
more patient, more kind, right? More loving, more patient, more kind. You say, well, pastor, I don't really have that in my life right now. Start reading more of the Bible, okay? That's what, that's, that's, that's what will happen. But listen, people can change. Yeah, I'm not the person I used to be, and thank God. I'm not the person I really ultimately want to be, but I'm on my way becoming that person. Thank God you're not the person you used to be. You're not the person that you fully want to be yet, but you're on your way. There's this process of transformation, and that's why we, we get in the, in the Word and we stay in the Word. We get into prayer, we stay in a prayer. We get into church, we stay in the church, right? We don't say, well, you know what? I put my five years in now. I no longer need to go to church. Or I've, I've put in my ten years. I'm as, I'm as strong in the Lord as I'll ever be. I don't need church anymore. You never get to a place where you don't need church anymore. And I've heard people say, well, the church really... I don't really need the church. Okay, hotshot, maybe you don't, but you know what? The church needs you. Amen? The church needs you. With the better attitude, but the church definitely needs you. But people can change. Look at Saul, a hater, a persecutor, and now a preacher of the cross of Jesus Christ. Consider this fact. There are five women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Five women. Who are those five women? Tamar, talked about in Genesis 38. Uh, then there's uh, Rahab, talked about in Joshua chapter 2. And what was Rahab's occupation? The Bible doesn't say Rahab the nurse or Rahab the truck driver. But Rahab the what? The harlot. She was a sex worker who met the true and living God and her life changed and she ended up in the genealogy of Jesus. Another woman mentioned in the five of them, another one is, is uh, Ruth, the Moabitess, talked about in, in the book of Ruth. She was from a pagan people. You know who the, where the Moabitess people came from? They were corrupt people. They came from an insensuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And that, out, of, out of his two daughters came the Ammonites and the Moabites. They were vile, dirty people. You would never want to say, where are you from? I'm from Moab. That would, that would be an insult. But Ruth was a Moabitess, but she became a firm believer in the true and living God. And God changed her life. And she's in the... Rahab became the great-great-grandmother of David. Ruth became the great-grandmother of David. And then the other woman that's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus is none other than Bathsheba. And one day she was taking a bath, Mrs. Sheba. David saw her from his... His balcony, bad boy, David. She's another man's wife, right? You know the story. They, they come in this adulterous affair. He ends up killing her husband. Can you believe what's in the Bible? Yeah, there are bad people that needed God. And we all are bad people in need of God, really. And they end up getting married. And they have a son by the name of Solomon. And Bathsheba ends up in the lineage of Jesus. Oh, the last woman? Who is the last woman? Mary. Now, you know how Tamar got pregnant? Read it. Genesis 38. Her husband died. Her brother-in-law didn't want to take her in to give her seed because she had no, no son. Her father-in-law said, well, maybe I'll, I'll get one of my wives pregnant, and then if she has a son, then he'll grow, and I'll give her, him to her, to you, so you could have. She was like, I have to have a son. So you know what Tamar did? You don't want to know what she did. She pretended to be a sex worker. See, R2R has been around. We need, we've needed R2R for a long time. She pretended to be a sex worker, deceived her father-in-law, Judah, 
He didn't know that that was his daughter-in-law, paid money, did what that stuff does. She got pregnant and ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. How many know God can take a really ugly, bad, yucky situation and by his grace and power can change it? He can change a life. Now, the last woman's Mary. So of the five mentioned, thank God Mary finally came along. But the other four weren't so bad because you know what? God can take a bad situation. He can turn it around. Listen, so many people want to change the label on a bottle of poison. You can change a label on a bottle of poison, but it's still poison. God doesn't just change the label. He changes the content. He takes out the old heart, and he puts in a new heart. He takes out the old nature, and he puts in a new nature, and you become a brand new person. Saul was never going to be the same again because it wasn't a fad. And it wasn't faith based on a fairy tale. Here's the second point I want to leave with you. We're all chosen vessels of God. Look at verses 15 and 16 now of Acts 9. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, for he, Saul, is a chosen vessel. That's the only time those two words are mentioned in the Bible together, related to Saul. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. You see, up until this point, the message of Christ and the cross and the resurrection was only preached to Jewish people. The, the, early Jew, the early Christians who were Jews converted to Christianity or Messianic Jews, they actually believed that, you to, if, you, that if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become a Christian, you had to go from being a Gentile, you have to be converted to Judaism, being a Jew, circumcision, all of that, then you could become a Christian. And God says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Anyone can come to the cross come directly to Christ and be saved. That was the message that Saul, who became Paul, was going to preach to the Gentiles, to kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, follow me now, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. How many things he must, he must suffer. So he's a chosen vessel. You know, we're all chosen by God. We've been accepted in the Beloved. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.9 that we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a peculiar people. Uh, there's no greater honor in life than to know, understand, believe, and affirm in your own life that you've been chosen by God. Of all the billions of people in the world, you're chosen. Jesus said many are called, but few are chosen. That's some deep theological waters there. And we won't go there right now, but many are called, few are chosen. If you're a believer today, or you become one by the end of this service, you and I really can't take any credit for that. It's all God's sovereign grace and the work of His Spirit on your behalf and my behalf. But I regularly thank God that I'm a Christian and I know I can't take any credit for that. I didn't wake up one day and said, I think I want to go to heaven. I think I need to get saved. No, it was a work of the Holy Spirit in my life that brought me to that place that the blinders fell from my eyes and I saw the light of the glorious gospel. How many of you are thankful that you're a Christian today, that God has saved you by His grace, His amazing grace? And you're chosen. You're chosen. You're a part of a royal family, a royal priesthood. Whew. We, are a, we make up the body of Christ a holy nation. We are chosen of God. But yet, I think many times we lead people to Christ under false pretense. We say things like this, and it's true, but it's a half-truth. Come to Christ, and you'll have joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's true. Come to Christ, and He'll give you peace beyond all understanding. That's true. 
come to Christ and your burdens of life will be lifted for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Yeah, that, that's true. Come to Christ and you can lay all your sorrows down at his feet and, and replace. He'll give you his presence and in his presence is the fullness of joy. And that's all true. But if you'll come to Christ, you'll face suffering too. The Apostle Paul said later in his writings, all who will live godly will suffer persecution in this world. All who choose to live godly in this world, in this present age, will suffer persecution. Think of our fellow Christians in places like North Korea, our fellow Christians in the Middle East right now, our fellow Christians in Egypt, our fellow Christians in Iraq, and the suffering that's going on in our world simply because you don't worship the Muslim faith. You're, you're not a Hindu. You're not a Buddhist. You're not a, an atheist, a communist. And the persecution in China right now, of our fellow Christians, the suffering. I'm not talking about suffering. Many times the suffering in our life is the, is the result of bad decisions that we make. Or those that have, we've been entrusted to their care and they've made bad decisions, it impacts us. I'm not talking about the suffering that is a result of making bad choices and bad decisions. Or the suffering that's the result of others in our life that make bad choices and bad decisions. I'm not necessarily even talking about the suffering that's a result of being in a broken, fallen world like we live in. But the suffering that is the direct result of you stepping over, crossing the line, switching from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear Son. No longer being a child of the night, but a child of the light. That as soon as you begin to say, I'm going to serve Christ with all of my heart, the forces of hell are unleashed against your life. Thank God we always have the victory through Christ Jesus the Lord and greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. But nonetheless, there will be suffering. I believe that sometimes we experience suffering in life, not because of our own mistakes or the mistakes of others, but simply because you're taking a stand for Christ. Maybe it affects you financially. Maybe you battle a sickness that you wouldn't have battled had you not given your life to Christ, but thank God He is our great physician and He is our healer. Maybe your kids will go through a struggle or a battle that maybe they wouldn't have had you not surrendered your life to Christ. There are attacks, but I'm thankful. David reminds us in the book of Psalms, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Aren't you thankful that at the end of the day, we win and God will have His way. Paul listed the things he suffered. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he mentions 27 different ways he suffered for Christ. Read them for yourself and count them for yourself. I may be off by one, but I counted 27. He was shipwrecked. He was falsely imprisoned. He was beaten. He was stoned. He was left half dead once. God basically raised him to life. He was in storms. He was betrayed by false brethren, he calls them. But of all the things he suffered for Christ, and it was a joy, a joy and an honor and a privilege to suffer for Christ. That's how the early Christians, even later in the years that the first century Christians began to be persecuted by Nero and by the Caesars and by Rome. They were thrown and fed to lions. And they counted it all joy to suffer for Christ's sake. What faith that's not faith that's a fad. That's not faith that was based on, on a fairy tale. But the two things that weighed the most heavy upon the heart of, of Paul, the apostle, listed in 2 Corinthians 11, are the things he suffered for Christ's sake. He said this, my journeys, all his travels, and the burden 
I bear for all the churches until Christ be formed within you. But he was a chosen vessel. And with that came some suffering. The third thought I want to leave, share with you is this. The church is a family. Let's say that together. The church is a family. And just like any family, sometimes we just don't get along. Isn't that true with your family? Sometimes you just, you all might be sitting in different places today. I'm just glad you're here. That's all right. Sometimes we just may go to different services. Amen. Sometimes we just don't always get along. But we're family at the end of the day, and we got to sort it out, don't we? we got to figure it out with God's help and God's grace, don't we? Why? Because we're family. Turn to the person next to you and say, we're family. It's like the Italians do, okay? We're family. <laughs> and what does it mean? It should mean something to us, right? Look at what it says in verse uh, 17 of Acts 9 now. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, everybody say that with me, Brother Saul. That's the first time that's mentioned. Remember, they weren't called Christians until Antioch, Acts 11, 26. They were first called people of the way, and then they were called brethren. And it's sad that we have so vulgarized that phrase in modern Christianity. It's kind of sad. But it should mean something. It should mean something that when you give your life to Christ, you become a part of God's family. And that makes us brothers or sisters in Christ. You see, Saul went from being an enemy to being a part of the family. He called him Brother Saul. He said, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight, notice this, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Saul, he, he now became Brother Saul. He became part of the family. Now, what does it mean to be part of a family? It means at least three things. Number one, it means we have a common father. If we're brothers or sisters, that means we have a common father. Number two, we have common rights and privileges. And number three, we have common responsibilities because you're part of the family. We're committed to one another. It should mean something. You know, at the end of every service, I... We give an altar call because we don't want to take for granted that everyone's saved. We don't want to take for granted that everyone is walking in relationship with the Lord. So we ask those that need to rededicate their life to Christ or those that need to accept Christ for the very first time. And at the end, I always say the same thing, right? Hey, for those of you that just prayed that prayer to rededicate your life to Christ, I want to be the first person to say, welcome home, child of God. And for those of you that just accepted Christ, I always, I always say this, I want to be the first person that says, welcome to the family of God. You are now my brother or sister. In Christ you know it means something to me and I know it means something to you and it should that we are family in one sense we're more family than our blood family why I hope all your blood relatives are saved and are going to heaven but if they haven't accepted Jesus they're not going to heaven not on your account they have to come to faith in Christ like you did you won't spend eternity with them I hope all of our family members end up being saved but that person seated in front of you or behind you the blood of Jesus is the stronger bond. You'll spend eternity with them. What does it mean to be a part of a brotherhood? Listen, before I, before I 
surrendered to enter into ministry. We all have our calling in life, and we all have to submit to that. Sometimes we get distracted by other callings that we would like that are, are good for others but not good for you. I always wanted to be in law enforcement or the military, and I remember after I got saved, I, was, I, had, it, I had said in my mind I was going to go in the military, and I, and I went through the process, took the test, and I was one signature away. Why the recruiter said this, I don't know, but he said, Carl, you need to sleep on this before you sign it. I went home, and that night God troubled my soul, and he said, this is not the path I have for you. And I tried negotiating and talking God into it. And, you know, in four years from now, then I'll go to Bible school. He said, no, you have to go now. And so I surrendered. I obeyed God. So I've always had a love for those of you in the military, those of you that serve in the military and law enforcement. And, I, and, and you are part of a brotherhood. You know, uh, I, I was watching the news this past week, and, and there's this guy that, that uh, I really admire. I don't know if he's a believer or not. But his name's Tim Kennedy. He, he was a special forces guy. And then he, he retired, and he got into the UFC and was a top-ranked fighter. He recently retired from the UFC, and he re-enlisted in the Army. I think we have a picture of him. Aren't you glad guys like this are on our side fighting against the bad guys? I don't know about you, but when guys like this are fighting the bad guys, I sleep better at night. Thank you very much. So he re-enlisted. And they said, well, why, why are you re-enlisting? He said, well, you know, the military got their teeth back and the guys that are in charge now, he says, yeah, it's, it's, it's back to where it needs to be. You know, these warriors, they have a different mindset, right? And then he said this. He said, the enemy got one of my brothers and I'm going to mete out justice. Wow. The enemy got one of my brothers. What does it mean to us when we see a brother or sister in Christ stumble or we see them fall, do we beat them down further? Or do we bring out our dead, our dying, and our wounded? You see, we are family, and that should mean something. And finally, number four, our faith must be nourished. Verses 18 and 19 of, of Acts 9, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Now, he got saved. Saul got saved on the road to Damascus. When Ananias went to that house of Judas and prayed for him, he got healed. Something fell from his eyes. He got filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, you get saved, and then there are these next steps. Paul's next step was to be prayed for by Ananias and receive a physical healing, which he did. The next step was to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which the Bible talks about. There is salvation, the salvation experience, and then in Scripture what's taught, I know it may not have been taught in your church, may not be taught in your denominational, the persuasion of faith that you grew up in, but it's taught in the Bible. And we'll talk more about it when we get into Acts chapter 10. There's what's called by Jesus and the early apostles the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul received the infilling of the Holy Spirit and later on talked about that experience in his life, often in his letters. He talked about his salvation, Jesus resurrected Lord and Savior. But he also talked about the communion that he had with the, the fellowship that he had with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in his life. And he goes into great detail on three of the nine gifts in 1 Corinthians 14. But now he's being baptized in water. So what always has to come first is salvation. Uh, you could be healed, and then that healing, that miracle says, wow, God, you're so real, thank you, and then you get saved. But first you get saved, 
and then you can get water baptized and then filled with the Spirit, or you get saved, water baptized, and then filled with the Spirit. What always comes first is salvation. But then he had received some food, he was strengthened, and then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now what's happening? Paul is a new convert, and he needed to be nourished spiritually. You know, 1 Peter 2, 2, it says that like newborn babies, you must crave the pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into the full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment. You know, we never stop growing, and that's why we never stop consuming the milk and the meat of God's Word. We need to remain spiritually nourished. Many, there are many malnourished Christians in the body of Christ. But we need to stay nourished and stay growing in our faith. And it takes others coming alongside to encourage us in that new spiritual journey. And we're seeing that in the life of Saul. And finally, one last verse, Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Say this word with me. Immediately. Immediately, he preached, Saul preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Just a few days later, no sooner does he get saved, healed, filled with the Spirit, water baptized, begins to nourish himself not only physically but spiritually. The very next Sabbath, he's in the local synagogue preaching that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, is the Son of God. People can change. And it's not a fad. For the rest of his life, he did this. Until, according to church tradition, Nero cut off his head when he went to Rome. He gave his life ultimately because it was more than a fad. It was more than a fairy tale. It's a living faith. And I hope you have experienced that living faith. If you haven't, you can today. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you need to rededicate your life to Christ, now's the time. It's not too late, friend. If you're here today and you need to surrender your life to Christ, you've never been born again, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart knocking. If you hear his voice and open up the door of your heart, he'll come into you. He'll have fellowship with you and you can have fellowship with him. He's not just going to change the label on the bottle. He's going to change the bottle and the content in the bottle if you'll accept him into your life. If that's you, I want you to pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. I want you to say it with your own mouth and mean it from your own heart. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive His love, His grace, and His forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my Father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Give me strength to live for you, and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?